So in life, there are big questions we're going to encounter and face. They change as we grow up. Early on, a big question is, what cereal am I going to choose? It's going to be Fruity Pebbles, Lucky Charms. I can't stand either one of those. My, uh, my household, that's some of the choices that take place. Isn't it funny that some of these cereals, I mean, they'll, they'll put on there like gluten-free and stuff like that, and you start just because they want to entice you that, hey, now this is healthy, all right? Um, but big questions, you know, big questions when you're a little kid is, are we there yet, right? Are we there yet? Um, another big question may be, uh, what teacher am I going to get next year, or what position Am I going to play on the baseball team? And we think through all those things. Um, and then as we grow older, as we especially get close to graduation and in our high school years, we start thinking, what college am I going to go to? Am I going to go to school or am I going to work and jump into the work world? What am I going to do after school? What am I going to do after college? What job am I going to have? What career am I going to make? And then one day, who am I going to Mary, right? And so these big questions, but there is a big question, the biggest of all, in all the universe that is significant to everyone in here, significant to us all. It impacts our life now. It impacts our life for the future, forever, even after death. And it's the question that Jesus poses to his disciples today. That's the question he poses to us all. And so today what I would like to do is study this question and to look at this true confession, this common confession that we're to hold as the people of God about who Jesus is. And for those that hold that confession, what our life is to look like as disciples of Christ, what the nature of discipleship looks like and is. And so if we could this morning look at Luke 9, the text that Graham read for us, and begin with posing this question that Jesus asked his disciples, who is Jesus? Who do people believe Jesus to be? In verse 18, it happened that while Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, who do the people say that I am? One of the things that Luke does is, He shows us continually the dependence of Jesus Christ on the Father. And so he's praying to the Father. I don't want you to miss that. He's praying to the Father. And then as soon as he's done praying to the Father, the disciples who are with him, he turns to them and he poses this question. He wants to know who do the people in this region, he's at this time in the region uh, of the Gentiles, specifically Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, It's an area full of false religion, an area full of idolatry. That's the backdrop to this question that he asks. Who do the crowds think I am? Uh, What role do the crowds think I am fulfilling based on who I am? And so what does the world think? 
And so look at verse 19. The disciples answered and said to him, Some believe you to be John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. Now this kind of sounds familiar, right? Remember last week the disciples were sent out uh, two by two into the Gentile region, into the Galilee region, and so, uh, excuse me, Galilee region. And so they go out and they go house to house and some welcome them and some reject them and Remember Luke said the culture was one of questioning of who Jesus is. Herod questioned uh, and was perplexed about who Jesus was and wanted to meet with him. And some believed, just as the disciples said, as they found, as they were meeting with people, and I'm sure even talking to people uh, around that huge meal that Jesus made happen, right? The feeding of the 5,000, probably 20,000 plus actually. And so I'm sure there was talk and buzz. Who is this one who takes... Five loaves and two fish, right? And turns it into this massive meal that satisfies people and even takes doggy bags home for all 12 disciples. Who is this one who can do that? And so is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet that has risen again? Many held that view. Some believed that he was the forerunner, maybe who Malachi was speaking of. That he was maybe John the Baptist who had risen. Remember, Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. And so there seemed to be belief in resurrection, right? Or is he a prophet? Is he a prophet of old that has risen again? Some believed him to be the Messiah, but a different type of Messiah than who he really is. You remember, they wanted him to be this earthly, political, economic king who came and overthrow Rome uh, and rescue the Jews. The Jews were looking for a Red Sea experience again. And they were hoping that Jesus was that one who would do that and to set up this earthly economic kingdom. But that's not who Jesus is as Messiah. And so some believed him to be a prophet. What the major issue was is they did not believe him to be God. They did not believe him to be divine. They saw him as a good man, a good teacher, a rabbi, a prophet of old. Now today in our world, we see the same. Some hold the belief that he's a prophet. Uh, those of the Islam belief, faith, they believe Jesus to be a prophet. Some uh, believe him not to be God, uh, i.e. Jehovah's Witness, uh, Mormons. I mean, you can kind of fill in the blank. Um, but, but we see that today. Um, there is even... Uh, people who uh, will, will land that he's a, a, a man that he took on. We saw this with our study of 1 John, that he took on the spirit of the Messiah at his baptism, but eventually at some point that, that left him and, and leads his death, obviously uh, not to be one of salvation significance. And so some even lean toward that, and so saying that he's not God. And so there's all these different beliefs about who Jesus is. That's the world. And that's what the disciples said. This is what we found. Now, so it is in, in our day, and here's the warning I want you to get before we move on, is that Paul warned Timothy, the pastor, the young pastor, and about himself, but also his ministry. And, and here's what he says. I want you to listen to this. In 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine or teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, 
and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now he's talking to Timothy and he's warning Timothy about this. He's told Timothy, watch over and care for your own ministry, your own life, and for the ministry that's been given to you for the people in it. So he's telling them to warn the church, to be mindful this can happen in the church. And unfortunately, it happens today where false teachers will rise up and start teaching things even under the umbrella at the beginning that it's Christianity. Even we see in denominationalism in our world today, different branches of different denominations becoming uh, liberal, very liberal, and so much so where they completely have moved out from the umbrella of Christianity. You see that with the likes of Methodist churches as a whole, but majority. You see that at different branch, uh, Episcopalians. I mean, we could go list on and on. And, And the ultimate issue is how do they handle Jesus? And the actual rub is that Jesus is not God. There's the likes of a man, and I'm gonna mention his name because of his robbing. And he is a he's a wolf in sheep clothing. His name is Rob Bell. He's the biggest heretic in our day. Used to be head of a big church up in Michigan. He's a very slick modern dude, talks well, attracts well, does not believe in the significance of a virgin birth, denies it, i.e. does not hold that Jesus is God, lands in the area of universalism, and I could, I could go on and on. And so, so it's the likes of those people, and the warning is for us to make sure that we continue to believe the truth about who Jesus is. Because in reality, it will continue. It will only increase the different things, the different falsehoods that will not only come out through the world, but in churches. And so we must be on guard against intellectualism, against smooth talking. So don't listen to him specifically or anyone like him or read him or anyone like him because all religions are not on equal footing. And it all comes to how we answer this question, where we land, right? Look at verse 20. He said to them, Jesus did to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Okay, there's no bigger question in life than this. And how we answer it. And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. So Jesus asked the disciples, what do you believe about me? Who do you believe me to be? What do you believe about the role that I am fulfilling, who I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ of God. His confession, confession real simply, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ right? He is the one that the Old Testament has prophesied about, predicted about, that he is going to be the Messiah, the one who saves, the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53. He is the Messiah, but not only that, he is divine. He is God. He is God in the flesh, John 1. 
Now, Matthew puts Peter's response a little different in what he says. Look at Matthew 16, 16 up on the screen. It says, Peter said that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, what's significant about this, it is upon this belief, upon this confession, that Jesus has built his church. Upon this confession, okay? Not upon Peter, not upon a papacy, right? That's not the goal. That's not what he was saying. But what he was saying is, I build my church upon this confession about Jesus as the Messiah and that he is God. And that's why he says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. A church that continues to believe and uphold that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, and that he is God. The gates of Hades will not overpower that church. And so that's why we must continue to preach the gospel and the truth about Jesus and his personhood, who he is. That's who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is God. He's not a mere prophet. He is God who came in the flesh. He's not a political Messiah who will overthrow Rome and rescue the Jews like they believe. No, he is the Messiah, the Savior, who will disarm Satan and his cohorts and will overthrow the power and hold of death, conquering it once and for all so that all peoples have the opportunity to have their souls rescued. And there's none like him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. That's who Jesus is. That's who he is. And so who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? What is your response? Because it's the biggest question you will answer, not just with your mouth, but with your life. Who is he to you? And Jesus continues, and for the first time in this gospel writing of Luke, he mentions the suffering that he will face. Look at verse 21 through 22, and this becomes our clinging hope. So here we have this confession. It's to be a common confession of the church. It's individually hold, but it's also held as a people that we uphold together. But here we see this clinging hope, and it's at the hands of his suffering. Look at verse 21 through 22. It says, but he warned them, the disciples, and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. To tell anyone what? It seems that he didn't want them to tell about his Messiahship and specifically that he was going to be the suffering Messiah yet because it was unnecessary right now, right? It seems that Jesus is saying here there is a proper time, okay? And it seems most likely that we see this happening, especially at the uh, triumphal entry, and so that seems to be kind of what Jesus is pointing to, of why he says, hey, don't, don't go out and just, you know, herald this right now, okay? But he says to them this, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Here we find Jesus affirming Peter in what he declared about him. That you are the Christ, the Son of uh, the Christ of God. Because how does he do that here? Well, he says, Jesus says, the Son of Man. So he's referring to himself. What does that term Son of Man mean? It's a significant term. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, it's used by Daniel in chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. And it's speaking about the Messiah. And so Jesus here is saying, I am who you say I am. I am the Messiah of God. 
And listen to what Daniel 7 says. I kept looking in the night visions, this is Daniel, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's who Jesus is, as the Son of Man, as the Messiah. And so he is the Son of Man. He says here that he must suffer. So he is a suffering Messiah. He will suffer many things and be rejected. So here Jesus is moving toward, he's declaring to them his movement toward the cross. And he willingly will suffer. He willingly will be rejected. He willingly will die. And eventually he'll raise up on the third days. Who will he face this from? The religious leaders, right, of that day. He mentions the elders, the scribes, and the chief priests. He will face suffering and rejection at their hands. It says he will be killed and be raised up on the third day. As the suffering Messiah, Jesus will die on a cross. Nails will pierce his hands and his feet. The sin of the world will be placed upon him. And he will stand in place as that substitute for us. As the suffering Messiah, he will die in the place of mankind. So that those who will trust him and believe in him as the suffering Messiah of God, that they will be forgiven. And that his death pays for the price of their sin. That they would not have to pay the debt that they owe. He stands in their place. He dies. And then on the third day, he raises again. He comes back to life. 100% God, 100% man, glorified. Spends 40 days on earth, we're told, before he ascends into heaven. And so we cling to that hope. That's our clinging hope. Those who hold that confession, this is our clinging hope. And so with this in mind, our confession, our, our clinging hope, what's our life to look like? What is following Jesus look like? Because we can't miss this, right? Because there is a life to this confession. There is a life to this clinging hope. And what is that? Look at Luke 9, 23. It's a life of commitment. Verse 23 says that he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If you want a verse to memorize, there's a good one, right? A great one. He says here, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This isn't just for the disciples that are with him, the 12. This is for anyone, for everyone. If you want to come after me, that's an interesting phrase. If anyone wishes to come after me, me, if anyone wants to know me, if anyone wants to have a relationship with me, if anyone wants to become my disciple, if anyone wants to make me Lord and King of your life, Jesus is saying. And really what it's saying is simply this, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So what's the emphasis there? What is he talking about? He's talking about following. If you want to follow me, and that's what true faith does, it follows Jesus. It follows him and his ways. And so here is a command he gives that is to be obey. He gives us this to do. And then what he's going to do is going to give us three motivations on why we should obey this command. 
And where do we get those? Look at verse 25, excuse me, 24, 25, and 26. I just want to show you these before we go back to 23. But he says, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. For, key word, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For, second for, what is a man profit if he gains the whole soul and loses or forfeits himself? And then verse 26 for, that's the third one, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so here's what I want you to see. Jesus is saying those who hold this confession, this clinging hope, that there is a life of commitment, that you are to obey this command to follow. And there's motivations to this. There's I wouldn't even say incentives to this. What I love about Jesus is he never just throws out obedience without a reason, right? And here we have obedience, obey this command, verse 23, and here is why, 24, 25, and 26. Here's why. And I think he he shares this to to strengthen us, to, to encourage us. Also to put some holy fear in us as well. But look at verse 23 again. He says, so, so if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So what's this idea of denying self? Denying self, we could say it like this. Saying no to self and yes to Jesus is dethroning, dethroning oneself and enthroning Christ as king. Or it's making Jesus and his word the ruling principle of our life instead of our own whims and desires and motives. Deny self. The Bible talks about the old self, right? That we are to deny that. The old self that was opposed to the way of Jesus and following Jesus, we are to continually deny that. And the new self wants to do what? To live for Jesus, follow Jesus, okay? So we deny the old self because we have this new life, right? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified in Christ. I no longer live, right? But the life I live now, It's based on the one who lives in me. It's Christ, and he's the son of God who loves me and died for me. So I have this new life, and it's Christ doing the living in me and through me. So I have this new self. So I deny self, and then what do I do? I take up my cross. What does that mean? I mean, there's many directions we can go, but I want you to think about this this morning. Back in the day of, of Jesus' day, the Romans would put... Not just Jesus on a cross, but they would put criminals on a cross, right? They would put people who uh, opposed the government and were following Jesus, even people who were persecuted over time, they will put them on crosses. And, and, And what was that a sign of? Well, those people would face opposition, right? Those people would face shame. Um... Those people would face suffering. Those people would face death. Okay? And so you think about a cross. It was a very shaming event, a suffering event, eventually death. And so I think it's the idea of this. Are you and I willing to bear daily opposition? Are we willing, even maybe official opposition, are we willing to bear shame, to be made fun of at school, by people at work, to laugh at, ridicule? Are we willing to suffer are we willing to die because that's what's included here but for what reason 
And the reason, real simply, if you look at the text, is in verse 25. For my sake, Jesus says, for his sake. Are you willing to take up your cross for my sake, Jesus is saying. And so with those four things in mind, I think what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us this motivation why we should follow him this way, denying self, taking up cross. Willing to face opposition, willing to face shame, willing to face suffering, willing to face death. And why? What are the reasons? Verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So saving your life, what does he say? Leads to losing your life. And the implication here is forever. So saving means what? Saving your life means avoiding the four things <laughs> that go along with taking up your cross. Avoiding, I, I want to avoid opposition, right? So what do I want instead? I want acceptance by the world, right? Saving your life here on earth is not just avoiding opposition, but it's avoiding shame. I want glory. I want fame here on this earth. I want to be honored here on this earth. The third thing is saving your life here is avoiding suffering. And so what do I want? I want comfort. I want all comfort. And so my life becomes about comfort. And then the fourth one, I want to avoid death. So I want all safety. So I do everything I can in life. My life becomes about those four things. And so I'm opposed to taking up my cross. That's what saving our life is. In the end, we lose our life. And the implication is eternity in hell. But the flip side, Jesus says, if you lose your life here on earth, if you're willing to take and face opposition, if you're willing to face shame for Jesus' sake, if you're willing to suffer and to die for Jesus' sake, you will save your life forever. So these are his motivating reasons of why take up your cross, church, right? I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. John 12, 25 says, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Self-denial, cross-bearing, accepts those four things willingly for Jesus' sake. And then look at the second reason, second motivation, verse 25, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world, loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is saying here, there is no profit in gaining approval of others. <laughs> there is no profit or gain in the world when it comes to fame here on this earth. There is no profit in gaining all comfort and all safety because if that's your pursuit, you forfeit your soul. You forfeit your soul. You gain the world, but you get hell. That's his point. That's his point. Saying, am I motivating enough? Jesus is saying. <laughs> he put it another way, Matthew 6, 24. 
Jesus said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one, love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For some of us, it's the pursuit of money. For some of us, it's the reward of career. For others, it's the praise of others. For others, it's a habit or lifestyle we cannot renounce. We want to keep holding on to those things. But Jesus says, me or these other things. There's no middle ground. Jim Elliott put it this way. Jim says, love this quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We hold very loose the things of this world. In fact, we renounce many of them for the sake of Jesus because we want to be with him and know him and follow him, pursue him. And then lastly, the third reason, motivation, verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so Jesus gets right here and says, hey, are you ashamed of me? Are you ashamed of my words, the truth? Are you ashamed to obey my commands? Are you ashamed to tell other people about the gospel? I mean, there's a lot of things included in this. And he says, if you are ashamed of me, i.e. not willing to take up your cross and deny yourself, then he says, when I come back again, I will be ashamed of you. That's hard words. But again, Jesus is saying these why to motivate us, to give us a reason, to point us, to encourage us. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me this way. But I want to show us, before we wrap up, this little point. Look at the end of verse 26. He says, If you're ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the angels. Jesus here, I love what he does. He's mentioned his death, he's mentioned his resurrection, he's mentioned that he's coming back again. And so I think he's given the picture to these disciples of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has a confession to it, that Jesus is the Messiah of God, that he's the Christ of God. It is a clinging hope that we've seen. Not only that, it has a commitment that we are to be about and live presently, taking up our cross, denying ourselves. That's how we're to follow him as those part of the kingdom of God. But that's not all. I think what he's, what he's saying here is, hey, there's more to the story. I mean, can you imagine as the disciples? Dude, we just saw this guy take like, I don't know how many different combo meals. It wasn't a lot, but he just fed like 20,000 people with them. And we walked home with leftovers. And you're thinking, dude, this is so cool. I mean, just in the now. I mean, wow. But he is painting a picture that, hey, this is big. This is big. This is my kingdom. And I'm coming again. But not only that, look at verse 27. Just lastly, he says, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Mark 9 adds, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And look, he's, he's throwing some things in here, and he's basically saying, hey, some of you guys aren't going to die before you get to see the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God. I think, I think he knows, all right, there's one guy here not going to get to experience that. 
right? I.e. Judas, okay? But you other guys are gonna get to see the kingdom of God in, in all its glory and power. And so what is he pointing to? I think he's saying to them, hey guys, you are just tasting and seeing. You're just getting to get a, a little experience of this, but the best is yet to come. And can you imagine these guys in Acts chapter two when they're sitting on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes and he starts to fill and indwell people and the amazing power of that day where people's lives are being changed as they're holding out the gospel, this confession, this confession, this clinging hope. These guys are holding it out and people are coming and you have this amazing spread of gospel transformation. And can you imagine these guys are sitting there thinking, wow, this is what he meant. This is what he meant. The kingdom of God and all its power. This is it. Lives are being changed. Transformed forever. Wow. And they got to see it. So here's my question. Do we get to see it? Are we seeing it? We're there. <laughs> The Holy Spirit inside of those who hold this confession, living this life truly committed to Christ. The kingdom of God, even though it hasn't been fully consummated, it doesn't happen until Jesus comes back again. All sin and death will be gone forever. He'll set up new heavens, new earth, and we'll dwell there forever with him. That's our future. The best is yet to come, you betcha. But what about now? The kingdom of God now here on earth. Where we're praying, Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth now as it is in heaven. Disciples got to experience. And guess what? We are fruit of that. We're fruit of that. And Jesus, just as he passed and, and pitched the handball, or excuse me, not the handball, the ball of ministry last week to the disciples. And he has pitched it to us and say, listen, I want you guys to go out. I want you to take this confession. I want you to take this clinging hope. And I want you to go spread and, and rapidly this gospel transforming message to the world. Just like these guys did. That's what he's called us to do. That's what we're to be built on as a church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So I hope you believe that. And I hope not only that, I hope you look today and say, you know what, Jesus, I want to obey your command. I want to deny myself, take up my cross, because that's how you want me to follow you. And I hope you're motivated by why. And it impacts your life. And therefore, it impacts others' lives because you want to see the power of the kingdom of God now. Let me pray.